and uh, good afternoon and welcome everyone to this latest edition of our Indic chat and this time I'm delighted to have with us uh, Hindal Sen Gupta and Hindal as you know is a prolific author he's also an editor at large at the Fortune India magazine and in 2017 he was uh, named the young global leader by the World Economic Forum and this year he became the first Indian to receive the Wilbur Award for his book, Being Hindu. He became the first Indian to receive this award for, you know, in this very, very prestigious category. In 2016, he came out with his book on uh, Swami Vivekananda called The Modern Monk. And last year he came out uh, with a book on uh, Guru Gobind Singh, the last of the, of the Sikh gurus called uh, The Sacred Sword. And this year his uh, book is out on uh, it's available for pre-order online on Amazon and other sites. Uh, it is on the Iron Man of India and it is titled The Man Who Saved India, Sardar Vallabhai Patel. So Hindal, on this very, very apt occasion, welcome to the Syndic Chat. I mean, what a delight to see you again. Thank you very much. I'm absolutely pleased to be here today and happy Independence Day to you and happy Independence Day to the Indic Academy and its wide, worldwide, should I say, family of followers of Indic Thought. I am hugely privileged that you've invited me and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you and the pleasure is likewise Hindal. And for our viewers and listeners who have tuned in, I'd like to also tell them that you can follow Hindal on Twitter. He's on Hindal Singh Gupta, I believe. You can, I would also strongly encourage you to please, please also follow Indic Academy on Twitter at Indic Academy and the Indic Book Club at the Indic Book Club. So with that, let's get started. My first question to you, uh, Hindal, would be that, uh, you know, we have had a few books that have been written on Sardar Patel, including one by Rajmohan Gandhi, by uh, Balraj Krishna. So why another book on Sardar Patel? Well, I mean, very simply, if you look at these two books that you mentioned, both Balraj Krishna and Rajmohan Gandhi, they were all nearly 20 to 30 years ago. They were fairly old books. And if you look at the trajectory of the number of books that have been published, there are three real figures of Indian independence. Indian independence rests on three pillars, Jawaharlal Nehru, Mahatma Gandhi, and Sardar Patel. And there are numerous books, really numerous books about Patel, uh, about Gandhi and Nehru, but Patel is missing in the picture. There are very few books on Patel. Even you could only think of two books in 70 years about Patel. And I really felt that here was a man who actually built the map of India as we understand it today. He's the man who built what we see as Indian, really the Indian cartographic imagination, should I say. The map itself was built by Sardar Vallabhai Patel, painstakingly joining more than 500 princely states of India to what at that time was called British India. Nobody could have done this apart from Patel. And for Indians to know so little about the man who actually built state by state their very map was a shameful thing. And my book, therefore, is called The Man Who Saved India because we do not recognize that Patel, Sardar Vallabhai Patel was the man who really saved India. That's why this book, and long awaited, should I say, maybe it should have been written decades ago, 
but I got an opportunity to write about it today, and so I wrote it. Very nice, and that brings me to my first question, which is that, uh, so first is, if you very rightly pointed out uh, that uh, the key people who, uh, who had uh, this very pivotal role to play in the integration of India and the independence of India were, as you said, Mahatma Gandhi, Pandit Nehru, and Sadar Patel, and you, you delve, uh, you know, in some detail in your book uh, on the relationship between these three people. And my first question to you is that, uh, given the age differences between uh, Sardar Patel and uh, Pandit Nehru, and the fact that uh, Patel was only about six years younger uh, to Mahatma Gandhi, you do hint that that perhaps played a role in the dynamic and the lens through which Mahatma Gandhi viewed the two, one as more of a compatriot, a brother, and the other one more as a son? Absolutely. Let's begin, though, by realizing that Sardar Patel's birthday is something that he invented himself. You would realize that at that time, in the 19th century, a lot of people didn't really know when or which day they were actually born. In Patel's case, he himself accepted that he actually, in a sense, made up his October birthday in 1875. However, we do know that he was born perhaps roughly in that period, give or take a year or two. So yes, he was more of a contemporary of Gandhi, should I say. And of course, Nehru was much younger. So uh, Gandhi almost had, in a sense, a paternal relationship with Jawaharlal Nehru. Though even Patel, in a sense, saw Gandhi as a father figure. Because remember, when Gandhi died, Patel wept at the feet of Gandhi and said that, you know, Kasturba, and Gandhi were the only real parents he had ever known because he had lost his parents early in life, right? So there was definitely a distinct difference between Patel's relationship with Gandhi and Nehru's relationship with Gandhi. However, we also have to remember that these people, these three men and many others in the national movement, their relationships with their family was always slightly difficult. Uh, you know, in Gandhi's case, his relationship both with his wife and his children used to be quite difficult. I mentioned that in great detail in my book. Same with Nehru, even though, of course, Nehru actually had the best relationship with his um, you know, daughter than many others. Patel had a difficult relationship with his children. I mentioned that in the book, too. So the national movement ensured that these men were really family to each other. Right. In more ways than one. So therefore, it's a very interesting dynamic. As you can understand, Abhinav, we often love and hate our family in equal measure all at the same time. And I think you see that in the lives of these men, too. Very true. Very true. And, uh, uh, you know, the second <clears throat> uh, I'd li like to talk about uh, Sadar Patel's very he was not a man known to smile or laugh too much. He no, was a serious man. He was a serious fan, and he all, but on the other hand, he did have a very, very dry sense of humor and a dry wit. Uh, in this sense, uh, I want to touch upon the fact that when Mahatma Gandhi decided to take the freedom movement nationally, he realized that uh, lots of money would be needed for that. 
and uh, it it fell upon sardar patel to really you know work the magic and uh, and canvas uh, for funds and in your book you write that uh, ghansham das uh, ghansham das birla once uh, uh, in a conversation with patel said that uh, mahatma gandhi wasn't too happy about uh, you know raising funds and so on and uh, uh, i do not like ma- uh, the sardar collecting money from businessmen is what uh, gd birla quoted the uh, Gandhi is saying to Sardar Patel, and Sardar Patel's reply was very characteristic of the man. He said, "This is not his concern." Sardar Patel said, "Gandhi is a Mahatma. I am not. I have to do the job." And he did in a in a way, didn't he? In 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 taking Gandhi's vision and actually implementing it. And you write about about the three uh, key agitations at that time in Khera, Baroli, and. Uh, Uh, one more place uh, you want to talk about the first uh, such agitation that uh, that sardar patel really got involved with absolutely you see you touch upon a very interesting subject abhinav you see the national movement was a gigantic task it needed a lot of money but who would raise that money gandhi wanted to be austere as is famously also said about gandhi that it took a fortune to keep gandhi in poverty pandit nehru wanted to be socialist and not have much to do with the capitalist and the industrialist but who then would raise money for this gigantic national movement as always it was sardar patel he was the man who was practical pragmatic and the man who raised thousands and thousands of rupees lakhs of rupees for the national movement and that's why he had a very good relationship with the indian industrialists that's another place where he and nehru differed a lot but the sardar was very clear as you mentioned he famously said the gandhi ji is a mahatma gandhi is a mahatma i am not i have to do a, my job also i say in my book which you must have read that ghansham das birla once famously said that essentially i just get a note from sardar patel on how much money i have to give and i just give it quietly right so there was a, there had to be a man who would do this job for the congress and it was patel who did it that's why where from very early on whether it's the kheda satyagraha or the bardoli satyagraha the management of this entire thing fell upon patel he was the guy who actually delivered the satyagraha movements on the ground and to that end you also write that it was sardar patel who he was so successful in organizing these grassroots level agitations was because he had built an unparalleled network of informants right from the ground up which who gave him basically an hour by hour update on all that was happening yes and and, and to let me talk a little bit about and ask you about the, the agitation at bardoli because when reading about it again you know it struck me that very little has changed in in the almost you know 90 years since that agitation first took place where the agitation was really about decoits the menace of decoits and the fact that the british government was hand in glove with those decoits so it it just struck me that you know nothing little has changed on the ground even today if you look at the reality of how you know so called decoits and and their uh, you know being in cahoots with the government uh, uh, how did yeah, bardoli of course was about that yeah bardoli was of course about two things one of course was taxation as you know land tax that was a big thing and of course as you mentioned this entire allied decoits issue 
See, Bardoli really is a very interesting movement because it was really the Sardar who rolled out the Bardoli movement, right? Gandhi was for a large part in prison. So the Sardar uh, actually rolled out. And remember, that's one of the differences between Nehru and Patel. Patel till the end was a man of the peasants. He really understood Gujarat's peasantry really well. He had a great hold in that entire region. And therefore, he could really deliver Bardoli in a particular way so that it could be rolled out completely effectively. He was the man who showed his prowess at Bardoli as a person who had the logistical and the um, uh, ability to roll out a movement and also could gather momentum among vast numbers of people and keep them committed over a period of time to a movement. This would later prove invaluable when the Congress began to do its other national mass movement. So, coming back uh, to the you know the relationship between uh, uh, you know Gandhi Nehru and Patel, I'd uh, like to ask you that uh, Pandit Nehru ended up becoming the Congress Party president four times. Yes. Starting uh, first uh, in, in I think uh, the late 1920s or 1930s or thereabouts and. Even then, where the rank and file of the Congress Party had a clear preference for Sardar Patel, it was uh, uh, Motilal Nehru's uh, slight nudge to the Mahatma that led to Sardar Patel being sidelined for the first time. Can we see the beginnings of dynastic rule really in the Nehru family? You know, show their their, their first uh, face then. Absolutely. I mentioned this very clearly in my book. After the Bardoli Satyagraha, Motilal Nehru himself wrote to Gandhiji saying that perhaps Sadar Patel is the best man for the job of Congress president because he has just delivered a huge success in the Bardoli Satyagraha to the Congress. However, the entire point was that uh, he said if the Sadar is not to be considered, then Jawaharlal Nehru should be given an opportunity. It's a very clever and twisted thing to say. And Gandhiji being Gandhiji being the ultimate politician, he basically found a quick middle path and chose Motilal Nehru himself rather than either Jalal or uh, Sadar Patel. Because he knew if you if he chose Jawaharlal Nehru at that point instead of Sadar Patel, he might not be acceptable to most people within the Congress party. So he chose Motilal Nehru. In a sense, and you know, there was this uh, famous moment later on again when Gandhiji chooses uh, Nehru instead of Patel, that Swaroop Rani, you know, Gandhiji's mother, uh, you know, is so delighted and so very happy that the, uh, the, th the, the throne, so to speak, of Congress president has moved finally from one generation of the Nehru's to another generation of the Nehru's. And of course, there were many other people who became Congress president, but that, of course, this kind of uh, transfer of power in one family became more solidified much later. As you know, Panditji accepted uh, the Bharat Ratna as a sitting prime minister, thereby showing the path for his daughter also to accept the Bharat Ratna. Indira Gandhi accepted it too. And nobody has ever been able to give me a clear response that why did Pandit Nehru, who people say was a modest man about power, why did he accept the Bharat Ratna and why did he start the president? of getting India's highest civilian honor uh, uh, as a sitting prime minister. And why did it take so long? You know, decades passed before Sadar Patel was given the Bharat Ratna. So all of this, in a sense, starts at that point. So, in that, so 
among the four times that uh, Pandit Nehru became the Congress Party president, I think the most uh, contentious and the most uh, debated one is the one in 1946, where once again, where the Congress Party had a clear preference for Sardar Patel, it was uh, Pandit Nehru who became the Congress Party president again at the insistence of Mahatma Gandhi. Now, later on, you write in your book that Maulana Azad ruled this as the single greatest blunder of his life. He writes, uh, I, I, and, I, and I'm uh, sort of you know, paraphrasing that having Nehru as the Congress Party president in 1946 and therefore as a prime minister was the single greatest blunder of my life. Why did Maulana Azad have, you know, have such a change in heart just a, a few years later? Well, because, you know, these were all internal politics within the Congress, right? And Maulana Azad always was sort of balancing, uh, you know, Gandhi and Patel, uh, uh, Gandhi, Patel and Nehru on three stools, so to speak, right? And his opinion sort of changed depending on the political situation. At one point, Maulana Azad himself wanted another stint as president. So he realized at some point that he had made a mistake and he should have gone with the consensus and given Patel the place of Congress president. Remember Patel, uh, even Rajmohan Gandhi 30 years ago writes this, that Patel at that time was perhaps most disappointed at being turned away at that point in 1946 because it was very clear that the person who becomes president at, at that time will probably get the position of the Prime Minister of India because it was a natural progression from Congress president to heading the first government. And he knew that if Nehru was being chosen as the Congress president, even at that time, then probably the doors were beginning to close for him as prime minister when India won in, uh, its independence. So he was, you know, that would have been a bitter thing in his, uh, in his mind. He definitely, and you can see after that, the relationship between Nehru and Patel begins to sour quite dramatically. Months after independence, both men say that they want to quit government, right? Yes, they do. Trials and tribulations that they are having between each other. They do. And uh, you again write that, uh, that Nehru threatened to uh, you know, leave office. It's another thing that he did no such thing. But uh, be that as it may, uh, I want to uh, you know, bring the discussion to 1946 again. And that is when the cabinet mission came to India. Yes. And... Uh, Despite uh, Patel's advice, despite the Congress party's advice, uh, Pandit Nehru went and started making some very, very intemperate uh, remarks about the cabinet mission and how the Congress would be free to change the rules and so on. And you write in your book that that seemed to tip Muhammad Ali Jinnah over the edge and which led to him declaring the, the direct action day in Calcutta. And which uh, you write, you know, even though the official death toll from the horrific riots, the communal riots there was uh, 5,000, but you write that as many as 16,000 people may have died, mostly Hindus, we will never know. But what exactly was happening there that caused Nehru to become so uh, indisciplined? Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Uh, you know, at that point in time, it was quite difficult for um, people to really understand how bad they would become. And it in fact became very, very bad. Uh, you know, it, 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 it caused a lot of trouble. It, it, it brought together bloodshed in Calcutta that was unprecedented. The idea that um, 
that all of this could be in a sense stopped uh, if Nehru had not made certain declarations, which made Jinnah very, very uncomfortable and made Jinnah very insecure, is a child that hangs like the sword of Democles on top of our heads as historians who write about this period of history. It is very, please remember, while Jinnah was, of course, the architect of partition, but it was Muhammad Ali Jinnah who was the first person who said, don't bring religion into politics. No one can dispute that, right? It was Jinnah who uh, basically broke with Gandhi at the Khilafat movement time, right? <laughs> and later also, when there could be an uh, effort to sort of, you know, in some senses, bring together a certain compromise, I think while Jinnah was certain that he wanted Pakistan, it is true that the Congress also made him insecure. And in 1946, the point that you mentioned during the cabinet mission plan, it is quite clear that certain comments by Jawaharlal Nehru made Jinnah even more insecure, which drove him even more with more desperation towards doing whatever he could, including mass violence to get his beloved Pakistan. And, you know, in the same vein, when we're talking about, uh, when you say that, uh, that uh, you know, Jinnah broke with the Congress Party and Mahatma Gandhi over the issue of religion, it brings into, uh, into relief a couple of things. The first one is that uh, Sadar Patel uh, said on more than one occasion, and you write in your book, he said that I hate appeasement. And as a result of which he ended up becoming on more than one occasion, the fall guy for, from both sides, the Hindus and the Muslims. But more pertinently, in 1942, if I have got the year right, Maulana Azad was made the Congress Party president. And you write that, that was uh, some sort of an appeasement, uh, uh, you know, tactic by the Congress Party by Mahatma Gandhi to, to, to uh, in an attempt to woo the Muslims over to the Congress side, who had started gravitating in mass towards uh, Jinnah and the Muslim League. Is that uh, is that a fair assessment that uh, we see you know clear signs of of uh, religious uh, appeasement make their way into the Congress Party? Well, actually, you know both uh, Patel and uh, Nehru, and in this we must give credit to Patel and Nehru. Both of them saw before Gandhi did that actually Jinnah cannot be appeased, right? And he will get his Pakistan at any cost. It is Gandhi who took much more time to come to the realization that partition was inevitable. Whereas Nehru and Patel had seen the future in a sense, and they were under the impression that Jinnah can never be compromised with, and Jinnah can never be you know, brought on board in a sense, he will get his Pakistan. Especially because, remember I mentioned in my book, there were secret negotiations in a sense, where uh, essentially that the British were telling Jinnah that they would ensure that he get Pakistan. So in such a scenario, both Nehru and Patel were very clear that Gandhi's methodology of trying to get Jinnah on board would not work. Remember, till the last moment, Gandhi actually suggested that Jinnah be made prime minister so that India can remain together. Thankfully, uh, you know, both uh, Patel and Nehru realized that this would completely not work and this would be completely uh, be unstable and would destroy India from inside. Therefore, they completely refused to accept this argument and this solution. And so since now we are talking about uh, partition, uh, I want to ask you, often on, on in, in national media and you have certain intellectuals who will start making statements that it was, uh, uh, you know, it was uh, 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 
you know, Veer Savarkar or, or it was, uh, you know, someone else who first floated the idea of a, of a, a separate Pakistan, a separate country based on the, uh, on the basis of religious uh, denomination. And you write in your book and you quote extensively that uh, the idea of a tune of or basically the two nation theory owes its existence way back to Sir Sayyid Ahmad Khan and then uh, continuing, continuing on to, I believe, Shah Wali uh, and then to the poet Iqbal and finally to Jinnah. Can you walk us through, a little bit through the history of the, how this, this uh, theory of the two nation state came into being? Absolutely. All the characters you mentioned are very important. Sir Sayyid Ahmad Khan, of course, one of the first people who spoke about it. Uh, then, of course, Shawali, of course, uh, Iqbal, I quote extensively from his letters to Jinnah, where he's mentioning, including with geographical precision, what uh, the shape and size that this Pakistan, this new homeland for the Muslims would take uh, and what shape it would take. But also remember, there were also Hindus uh, who were, you know, sort of reacting to all this. Savarkar, of course, spoke in terms of two nations for Hindus and Muslims. Uh, there were others. I mentioned Hindu Mela, for instance, uh, you know, and many other bodies in Bengal who were also talking about, uh, you know, a, a separate destiny in a sense for Hindus and Muslims. So what happened in that period was there was this what I would call competitive communalism, right? It, be, it became a, a, a sort of scenario of competitive communalism where both parties through comments were egging on each other. Right. And uh, this and therefore pushing towards the idea that Hindus and Muslims had separate destinies. The most clear geographical picture of what that destiny would take uh, shape, of course, came from Iqbal. As I said, I quote very extensively from his letters, uh, which I, you know, of course, discovered at Columbia University, where I wrote most of this book. Uh, and from books of on Iqbal and papers of Iqbal at Columbia University's Great Butler Library, a library you would remember, of course, that Ambedkar himself studied at. Um, and I found a lot of material there, you know, I found a lot of material there. And uh, it, it's very clear that Iqbal envisions this geographical entity. So before him, of course, there was this talk of separate destinies and separate nations, both from the Hindu side and the Muslim side for Hindus and Muslims. But Iqbal really concretizes it and mentions even the areas in Northwest, at that time, Northwest of India, which could take the shape of Pakistan, which is, of course, what happens. So when it comes to partition, one of the most contentious uh, 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 you know, points of partition is obviously Kashmir is a problem that has been festering now for you know, well over 70 years. And one of the very, very unknown parts of, of uh, uh, Kashmir is that at one point, you write in your book, that uh, Sadar Patel actually talked about uh, settling Sikhs in Kashmir. And by Sikhs, I assume he referred to the, to the Sikhs who would be migrating to India from, uh, from uh, you know, West yes. Punjab, which then had become Pakistan. So yes. that, yes. frankly, I had never heard of that before. How credible is that? Well, it is all mentioned. I mean, you know, these are all documented and with citations. And uh, see, uh, what we know about partition history, remember also, it's obviously always slightly fluid because, you know, there are different differences at different time. It was a time of enormous violence. More than a million people were burned. So uh, I think we can take it uh, with, um, you know, with some caution, but there were definitely clear references to what you talk about. And how, okay, so on, on a slightly different note, 
one of the key partners in Sardar Patel in helping integrate the more than 550 princely states was a gentleman by the name of B.P. Menon, about whom very, very, very little is now known thanks to how our history has been treated. Uh, what, who was B.P. Menon and, and, and what kind of a role did he play? How did he assist Sardar Patel in this mammoth task? You know, V.P. Menon is a wonderful character. I love the character of V.P. Menon. V.P. Menon is basically was Indian himself as a loyal servant of the Raj, but actually worked to help India and played a stellar role in building and constructing this idea of modern India, putting all these states together. Remember, it was V.P. Menon who put this plan to Sadar Patel on how this entire integration of states and transfer of power could be. And he's the one who stayed with Sadar Patel step by step, unfolding this entire thing over many, many months that they worked together on this, right? So VP Menon is a wonderful character. VP Menon had the stoicism of a Malayali and the guile, in a sense, of a bureaucrat, right? So he basically was hard-nosed as a Malayali and also had this guile and the, and the steadfastness and also the rigidity of not wavering from what he wants that good bureaucrats often have. So he was a perfect bureaucrat, you know, he was a bureaucrat's bureaucrat. So he, B.P. Menon was this polite wall behind whom stood the fierce face of Sadar Vallabhai Patel, who people were frightened of. And VP Menon was a was a smooth talking but rigid bureaucrat who delivered the uh, you know the destiny that Sadar Patel wanted for India. I have to add at this point, and I just remembered that uh, that the, the, one of the rulers or the kings of Punjab actually put a gun to VP Menon's head, yes. and VP Menon well, could not be uh, That's you know, right. bothered. He was not bothered. VP Menon was impossible to fluster. You know, I, I say sometimes in my lectures that VP Menon would have made a great, uh, he would have made a great umpire. VP Menon was a classic cricket umpire. <laughs> you know, VP Menon would have been so good as a cricket umpire. He was unflappable. So, okay, I think we are uh, running out of time. So I'm going to ask you just one more question and then end with an anecdote and then we can open it up uh, to our audience for any Q&A that they might have. Uh, the most, one of the oft-repeated, I think, mistruths or half-lies is that uh, Sardar Patel could not become the prime minister because his health would not allow it. And you write in your book that while it is true that uh, his tireless work in during the plague of, of Ahmedabad had essentially broken his health permanently. It still did not stop this man from traveling to 500 states after independence and stitching India as we know together today. Why has this lie persisted over the decades that Sadar Patel could not become the prime minister because he was too ill or, too, or his health would not have permitted it? Yes, yeah, so I am astonished by it too. My point is very clear. It is clear that Sadar Patel was genuinely unwell. His health had broken down. Um, you know, but if he was so infirm and so weak, how did this man put together this entire country dealing with all these crazy Rajas and Maharajas, you know, negotiating with them, forcing them, 
remember sending the army in into in operation polo into hyderabad sending the army into kashmir clearly these are not signs of a weak man abhinav you know these are not signs of a man who's tired and is you know uh, is not being able to function this is the these are moves of a man who's resolute and strong so if he was strong enough to do all these things why would he not be strong enough to be a prime minister it's a question that we must ask ourselves it's an open ended question of history and i have never bought this i you know i mention in my book people also say oh sadar patel was too old to be congress president i show in my book that there had been congress presidents who were older than him and even later there would be congress presidents who would be appointed who would be older than him it's all given as a data chart in my book right so i want to end with one uh, great anecdote you know um, as you said sadar patel ever smile there are two critical times when sadar patel did smile one was when he went to the airport in hyderabad and nizam who never used to go anywhere uh, came to him up at the airport that famous photograph sadar patel did smile at that time and the other time when barely days before he died he had a plane crash right and in that plane crash when the plane is coming down sadar patel is laughing he's like well if death comes it comes two times when sadar patel defied all odds and smiled very true very true so uh, what i'd like to uh, tell all our listeners and viewers and anyone uh, you know who watches uh, this recording later is that uh, sardar patel is perhaps uh, the best and the finest examples of a statesman a politician a leader and a visionary combined in one that we have had in the last uh, you know almost 100 years uh, of of our history and to get a better sense and measure of the man i would strongly encourage people to read the book by uh, by beg borrow definitely do not steal uh, you know hindol's book that is coming out it's published by penguin india the title of the book is the man who saved india and it is available for pre order online on amazon and other places so please do read the book what hindol has just talked about is but a tiny tiny glimpse of the fascinating uh, multidimensional personality personality that was a sardar patel you also get a very very good uh, you know sort of a run down through the through the very interesting times uh, that we that the nation lived through so with this i again thank you hindol for doing this indic uh, uh, webinar and i'd request people to please follow us on twitter and when you get the chance also go to the indic book club website at www.indicbookclub.com and take a look at it it is sort of a good reads for all our indic viewers uh, lovers of books and and everyone so with that let's turn this open to q and a and if people have any questions they can uh, uh you know they can they can ask those questions and i'm going to go through the chat and see if any questions have come in through the chat and let's uh, see so we okay so hindol we do have a few questions one is from uh, uh from abhishek banerji who writes we know nehru was very much of an anglophile how did sardar patel view the british could you repeat that question again so abhishek banerji's question hindol is we know nehru was very much of an anglophile how did sardar patel view the british i am afraid i could not hear that question i'll just uh see if i can see that question um 
The question is by Abhishek Banerjee Hindolji. Yes, Anglophile. I, I, I can see the question right now. And I'm happy to answer that question right away. Uh, yes, that was a big difference between Sadar Patel and Pandit Nehru. Uh, Pandit Nehru was a classic um, England-trained Anglophile um, man of the world, whereas Sadar Patel remained a very rooted, uh, devoted to peasantry uh, son of a farmer. I say in my book that one thing that is very rarely understood in the debate between Nehru and Patel is that there is a class difference. Nehru came from one of the wealthiest families in India, whereas Patel was a son of a farmer. That's a very clear class difference between the two that cannot be ignored when you consider both of them. Very true. And in fact, you write in your book again, Hindal, that, uh, that Mahatma Gandhi said of Nehru that in Nehru, I have an Englishman in, uh, you know, in our party. And he viewed it as some sort of a positive, uh, he viewed it positively. Uh, but yes, and Nehru, Nehru himself said that Nehru himself said that he was the last Englishman to rule India, as you know. Uh, Pandit Nehru himself said that he was the last Englishman to rule India. Uh, let's just say that Sadar Patel could never be called the last Englishman if he had ruled India. Very true. I also see another question by Harikiran Vadlamani who asks, uh, can it be, uh, can the book be made into a movie? Yes, absolutely. I envisage this book to be made into a movie quite like The Darkest Hour, uh, which has been made recently on Winston Churchill. It could be a movie, a very exciting movie about this one old dying man against the empire and against all these Rajas and Mahars desperately fighting to keep India together. It would be a fascinating film if it's made into a film. And I hope such a movie is indeed made. Uh, and, and okay, so there's one more question. And I, it, it, it is remarkable in its brevity, but I don't think the answer could be so succinct in any case. I would uh, you know, encourage him to read him or her to read the book. But the question is, how did Sardar Patel view Nehru? Well, I think Sadar Patel and Nehru had a very complicated relationship. I think sometimes in debate, these things are made over simple. They were very close to each other. All these men were extremely close to each other. They were like family to each other. But having said that, they had extremely large differences, which cannot be ignored. They fought very hard on Kashmir. They disagreed on many critical things. They had an entirely different way of looking at India, um, including, remember, Sadar Patel sent RSS's Golwalkar uh, to convince Maharaja Hari Singh to join the Indian Union, even though he's the one who banned the RSS, but he's the one who lifted the ban on the RSS also. So Nehru and uh, Sadar Patel looked at India in very different ways, but they were also very close to each other. And uh, there was a certain familial feeling that they felt for each other. They had spent most of their lives with each other. So it cannot be made into very simplistic polemical points. It was a difficult and complicated relationship. Very true, very true. And I think it cannot be pigeonholed into uh, simple binaries. But I think the book does give uh, a fascinating glimpse into into how you know, the, the, the dynamic played out over the years. Uh, so I think I would like to end this unless not there are any more questions coming in. I'd like to, again, end this by thanking you, Hindal, for your time and to all our Thank you. Thank you very time. much. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Indic Academy. Uh, thank you, Abhinav. As always, wonderful to talk to all of you. Thank you, Hindal, and thank you, everyone, and have a good day. Bye. Bye.
Looking forward to your participation in the next Indic chat. Namaste. Thank you. Thank you.